0: Well, look over to chapter 5, and I'm going to zero our attention into verses 18 through 21, a crucial text. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, follow along as I read, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and Spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer, Father, how we need your Spirit to illuminate the truth to those who are in Christ and to open eyes for those. Who are not in Christ. Father, we're dependent upon you, Father, for every breath and for us to be filled with the Spirit and to abide in you. Father, instruct our minds and hearts, do what only the power of the Word can do, and Father, may we see this clearly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come to this wonderful section in the book of Ephesians on the filling of the Spirit, and. Uh, You know, it's funny, I'm smiling because maybe a lot of preachers would say this, that the most crucial passage is the one that they're teaching from, and uh, I believe that. This is a vital passage for us as a church family. The truth that Paul lays out here is absolutely critical to our walk with Christ, to our unity here, to our relationships With one another. Now, let me state a couple of major items as we approach this text, as we seek to set it in its context. Number one, the filling of the Spirit is so foundational to the Christian life that without an understanding of it, it would clearly leave you or I impotent or powerless to the resources available for our growth. So it's vital. We have to understand what this text means um, because it's vital for even our sanctification. And the reason that it's so vital is it's connected to God's truth. In other words, as you glance down, look again at 518, do not get drunk with wine that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What flows from that? Is all of his teaching to the wives, then the teaching to the husbands, then the teaching to children, and then to those who are employers and employees? In other words, you can't get to the section on the wives or the husbands or the children or those who work or those who are bosses, if you will, without grasping this truth. In fact, it's funny, if you just go into a series on the family and fail to mention the filling of the Spirit, you're a little bit out of the flow of Paul's context here. So all that I say here is going to make the huge difference when we get to families. In other words, families that are not walking in the Spirit can't walk with the Lord. Families not in submission to the filling of the Spirit, can't be obedient in the context of relationships. And so this teaching is extremely vital. But it's vital not only for that reason, but a second reason, because of the confusion, secondly, that surrounds this truth. Some have understood the filling of the Spirit in a different way than what Paul describes And I want to encourage you, whatever you might think the filling of the Spirit is, at least I'd invite you to leave your baggage at the door. Because this is a confusing topic to some, but it's certainly not confusing to Paul, and it's not confusing to the Scripture. But leave your baggage at the door, or at least come and say, what does this mean? In fact, I don't know about your background, but you have some idea. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? But it's going to be vital because of the context. And secondly, because of the truth that comes from it. And depending on your background, you might need to be retaught this. Now here, even the teaching of the filling of the Spirit comes in the context. Look back at Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of your time, because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Last time we were together before Mother's Day in this text, we talked about the wise walk. And there were three commands there. Look carefully. We said, don't play the fool. And thirdly, walk, if you will, in wisdom to discover, thirdly, the Lord's will. So there's a sense here that the wise walk is a spirit-filled life and it's even flowing from that. In fact, I think the teaching here as you get to 518 is a concrete example of being foolish or wise. In other words, I think he's, he's, he's further demonstrating that. In other words, foolish people... He told us to not be fools. Those people get drunk with wine. Wise people, if you will, walk in the Spirit. Now, the main command here is in verse 18. There's a couple of commands. You can see it in 18. Here's an imperative or a command. Do not get drunk with wine. Certainly, that's a command. But the lead verb is this in verse 18, where it says, but be filled with the Spirit. And I just ask you this morning, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Vital, crucial. We need to know what this means. And to understand that concept that Paul states there, in the weeks to come, I will outline it this way so that you can understand the filling of the Spirit, okay? We're going to be here for a few weeks. It's too important to, to skip over or just fly at 40,000 feet. Three, three main concepts. First, it's counterfeit. Secondly, it's command. And thirdly, it's consequences. When I say the counterfeit, before he gets to the main lead verb unbefilled, he gives a counterfeit in verse 18 to not be drunk with wine. He does that first, and then he follows up with the command, and that command is to be filled with the Spirit. And then when you and I are filled with the Spirit, thirdly, it results in consequences. You say, what are those consequences? Well, I don't mean to do a, uh, an English grammar la- uh, lesson here, but if you should know, there's five participles Five thoughts here that modify what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is not, I don't believe, how you get filled with the Spirit, but these are the consequences that result from the filling of the Spirit. They are addressing one another. They are singing and making melody in your heart to God, too. Or singing and then thirdly, making melody... Four, here's how you could really see if the filling of the Spirit is yours. You'll give thanks. You won't be Debbie Downer. You won't be Dean Downer. I don't know. I just made that one up. I hear Debbie Downer. You won't be Dean Downer. You'll give thanks for all things. Because when the Spirit's operating in your life and my life, the Spirit is giving joy. And you are, rather than complaining, rather than grumbling, grumbling. Rather than worrying, rather than fearful, you are giving thanks. Look, look what it says there in verse 20. Giving thanks always just for a few things. No, it says for everything to God the Father. And then the last here consequence is verse 21. You'll submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, some people put submission, that thought in verse 21, they connect it to the family. And you can do that, but I think it's easier to keep the command, be filled with the Spirit. Here's five aspects that modify that verb, and one of those is submitting to one another. And you'll note that maybe you've never noticed that. I think sometimes we often hear quoted verse 22, submit to your own husbands for the wives, But the truth is, when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, the way a wife will trust her husband, the way a husband will love his wife, the way that children will submit to their parents, and the way that an employee and an employer will submit, if you will, to the Lord. So that's the direction, and you gotta, you got to come, you got to be here, you got to listen online. This is vital, and I can't go too fast. I always think slow is better, okay? And so we're going to be at that because I want to help you understand this, even as I help my own heart with the joy of what he's taught me. So let's dive in here, maybe to the first two components today. It's counterfeit. It's counterfeit, Okay? Now, you'll note there in verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk. It says with wine. Now, I don't mean to be so specific, but that is just the thought of do not get drunk, if you will, with alcohol. He brings first here a counterfeit comparison. Now, what's Paul getting at here? Not do not get drunk with wine. There are some commentators, and maybe rightfully so, that cite the evils of wine, biblically, cite the evils of alcohol, and certainly that's true, and maybe I should just take a moment to cite that. He says, if you're going to walk wise, you can't get drunk. Now, I certainly think that we understand that, but it's interesting, at least to say this, that whenever Scripture speaks about drunkenness. It's placed next to terrible events. That would just be true. Noah in Genesis 9 became drunk and uncovered himself in the tent. I'll just give you a few. Lot uh, was drunk and his daughters committed incest with him. Nabal in the Old Testament was drunk and God took his life, 1 Samuel 25. Belshazzar in Daniel 5 became drunk and his kingdom was torn from him. Drunkenness is always associated with wastefulness and even recklessness. But when the text says here in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, it certainly could just be the social evils of that and we would understand that. But the primary issue here is it's not so much the evils of alcohol, but it's a religious one. It's a religious issue in this counterfeit, I think, at least primarily. There was, in the background here, in the context of Ephesus and the church that was there, a religious community, I would put it that way, that believed, to be, that, that, believed that to really be in touch with the gods, little g, that you had to drink yourself into some kind of euphoric state to really be aligned with the gods. I think people can say things like that even today, to really be in touch with God, that some even experiment with drugs and alcohol and uh, etc., But it's interesting that one historian said this concerning the Greek culture in which Paul wrote. And I thought it was insightful. And certainly this could just be don't get drunk because that's your old life and he's called you into the new life. But I believe primarily it's a religious issue that he's addressing here. Because in the Greek culture in which Paul wrote, the great God of Greek mythology was Zeus and Zeus gave birth to a son and his son was Dionysius okay who became the god in Greek mythology who controlled the earth and as Dionysius controlled the earth he developed a religion it was called the religion of ascendancy okay And that religion taught that human beings could arise to the level of divine consciousness brought about by ecstasy and emotion, if you will. It was a religion characterized in their writings by wild music, by dancing, by madness, and by ecstasies, if you will, and sexual perversion. All of that was induced with alcohol and specifically drunkenness. And so Dionysius became known as the god of wine. That's what it means. In fact, when I was in Albania years ago, a young boy introduced himself to me as Dionysius. And I was like, you know, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't know that that's what he was named after, but that was his name, Dionysius. I mean, his mom and dad said, here's my son. He's the god of wine, as they named him after him. I mean, this was just the the, the situation in this culture. Plato, the historian, said that while these abominable ceremonies uh, were going on, he said in the worship of Bacchus, okay, so Dionysius is Greek, Bacchus was the word that they had for Dionysius, if you will, in the Roman culture. But while these ceremonies, he said in worship of Bacchus, continued, it was difficult, Plato said, to find in all of Attica a single, sober man. So this was just a widespread issue. And the purpose of that religion was to cause Dionysius to fill the worshiper's body so that one would comply with the deity's will. So when Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, he's not dealing only with a social problem, only with a moral issue, he's dealing with a religious issue. In fact, I wonder, and you can't be dogmatic over this, if this was the very problem in Corinthians 10 and Corinthians 11, where they were coming to the Lord's table drunk. And so he says, listen, before I tell you what it is to be filled with the Spirit, here's the counterfeit. And whether it's just only religious or just even also a social evil, Paul said in Romans 13:13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But he told us if you're the new man with the new walk, the new woman with the new walk, this can't be part of your lifestyle. He says there in Romans that this is not what we do. And so Paul says to you, just as when he penned it, okay, that if you want to walk wise, don't get drunk with wine. Look back at the text at what he said about that. He said, for that is, and I'm reading obviously from the ESV, debauchery. That is foolishness. That is wastefulness, if you will. Debauchery is a Is a Greek term, and it describes the condition in which a person cannot control themselves, if you will. It's wasteful, it's reckless. In fact, it's interesting that the word here for debauchery was used in Luke 15, maybe you'll remember this, about the prodigal son when he squandered his estate, Luke 15, with, here's the word, reckless living. Same word for debauchery. So he says, Don't get drunk with wine. That's reckless. That's debauchery. In fact, Peter would tell you and me, 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions. There's our word drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. And lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So here, he's just saying, here's the counterfeit, and I think we understand that. The drunk person, if you will, has lost control. It results in the loss of understanding. It results in the loss of speech. It becomes slurred. It results in the loss of a walk. Can't even walk straight. It results in the loss of brain reflexes, timing, balance, all those things. Some years back when I had all of our kids in the van, we were in San Francisco in broad daylight, moving down in downtown Frisco. And as I stopped at a stoplight, I looked over to my left, and a drunk person was... Walking on just on the other side of the street, and I said, Kids, take a look at that. Take a look at that. Dad, what's wrong with him? Well, he's had too much to drink. I wasn't trying to make fun of the person, and he's just staggering all over the place. I said, that looks real fun, doesn't it, kids? And, you know, just trying to push him. You're, you're not missing anything. But this guy could barely walk, and he was swinging to the right and left. And right as he got to the curb, he stepped off the curb and just fell right into the street. And I said, kids, that's what happens. When you drink, and when you drink at that point like that, you have no control over your body, over your words, over your reflexes. So I think what Paul is saying here is far from communing with the gods, to be drunk is debauchery. It speaks of a wild, undisciplined, wasteful lifestyle. In fact, Scripture affirms this in Proverbs 20, verse 1. Where it says that wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated, the thought is, whoever is led astray by it is not, what, wise. I mean, I, won't, I could go for two weeks on the, the, the evils of this. But drunkenness in Proverbs 4 led to violence. Drunkenness in Gen, Genesis 9 led to immorality. Drunkenness in Genesis 19 led to incest. It's debauchery. So Paul says if you really want to be filled with the spirit, don't seek to be filled by the alcohol or wine, which sometimes they call spirits. He's giving the counterfeit here. It's reckless and wasteful. You know, it's interesting if you look at it this way. Alcohol isn't even a stimulant. Now, you know this. It's a depressant. It's a depressant to the brain because it causes one to lose fear. It causes one to lose discrimination. It causes one to lose power and reflexes. So Paul says, don't settle for the counterfeit. But there's a command, secondly, okay? Let's begin to look at that. He takes us from the counterfeit in verse 18 to the command. And the command here is in verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, you'll note, and I'll say more about this, it is a command. This is not an option. This is not advice for you. This is not a pretty please, would you do this? He's telling you as members of Grace Church of the Valley, that you need to be filled with the Spirit. Now, hold on just for a second there because before we discuss what it means to be filled with the Spirit, let's discuss what it doesn't mean, okay? And th- I trust that this will be helpful to you because there's confusion on this today. There's confusion on this very command here. So let me just tell you a couple things and click them off. Number one, the filling of the Spirit Is not a bizarre Christian experience. What he's talking about here in the command is not bizarre at all. In fact, I would say to you that it's a command in the language. So watch this this idea of being filled with the Spirit is not dramatic, it is not a vision, it is not a dream. It is not a feeling you get when you feel like you're going to get a feeling. It's none of that. The filling of the Spirit doesn't result in holy laughter. The filling of the Spirit doesn't result in flopping on the ground uncontrollably. The filling of the Spirit isn't talking about being slain in the Spirit or anything like that. And the reason I say that, and I'll share more about this, is the language itself tells us that this command is in the present tense. So far from being a crazy, bizarre experience, this is just 101. This is what it means to be a believer. This is how you walk wise. You walk, if you will, in the filling of the Spirit. Let me say it this way. This is the normal Christian life, or at least it should be. So number one, it's not a bizarre Christian experience. It's not a, it's not a prophetic word. It's, it's not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not that the Lord told me. It's none of that. Okay? Secondly, the filling of the Spirit is not a second blessing. Okay? It is not a second blessing. Some teach that this doctrine here, the filling of the Spirit, is linked to some extraordinary second work of grace in the life of a believer. I've had people tell me, have you experienced the second blessing? And I always tell them, I didn't know there was a second blessing. But they're asking me that. In other words, Scott, you have something, but you don't have really what you need. What you need and what you fundamentals need is a a second blessing. You need, well, I'm like, well, what is is that? I remember as a young teenager, they'd ask me that. As though there's some kind of holy zap that you would come to a place in your life where you reach, I I suppose, in some people's thinking, nirvana in evangelicalism, and you get a holy zap, and all of a sudden, you're blessed that they would teach that's what the filling of the Spirit is, and I'm telling you, that's not the case. The filling of the Spirit is, Far from a holy zap or a second blessing is the normal Christian life, or at least it should be. And again, the language would speak against this. The command is for a continual feeling, okay, filling, not a second work of grace. So before I can tell you what it means, we have to say what it doesn't mean. It's not a bizarre Christian experience, number one. Number two, he's not talking about the second blessing. Thirdly, okay, the filling of the Spirit does not refer to the sealing of the Spirit, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, or the possession of the Spirit, or even the indwelling of the Spirit. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, that's not what this command means. If you're a believer, you're sealed, You say, by who? By the Holy Spirit. How so? Well, maybe it's been a year and a half. Look back at Ephesians 1 just for a second, okay? Do you remember in Ephesians 1, he's working through the work of God the Father, saving us from eternity past. He chose us in love. You, believer, before the world even began, then Jesus Christ came into our world and he died in our place. He shed his blood. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of trespasses. So all of the triune God is at work. God the Father chose. The Son redeemed you in his death and resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit, look in verse 13, in him you also. When you heard, you gotta hear it, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. Here's the key. were sealed With the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, your salvation is guaranteed. You were sealed by the Spirit. How so? Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, and the Spirit guarantees the assurance of your salvation because he's the guarantor, if you will, who paid the down payment through Christ, and he's the one who accomplishes it all the way to the end of your life. But I say here that every believer, make sure you get this, at the moment of your salvation were sealed by the Spirit of God. In other words, that, but that's not the filling of the Spirit. You say, well, look over at Ephesians 4. Do you remember this? Just last month in Ephesians 4.30, where he said there at the end of verse 30, by whom you were sealed, in other words, you were assured for the day of your redemption, you're sealed all the way into glory. And so if you've lost a loved one in these recent months or year, understand if that loved one was in Christ, their salvation is guaranteed. And so here, it's not referring to that, okay? You say, well, why so? Well, up on the screen in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, beloved, enough to say that when you came to Christ, You were sealed by the Spirit of God. You were indwelt, if you will, by the Spirit of God. But that's distinct from the filling of the Spirit. When I think of indwelling and the permanent possession of the Holy Spirit, He's the one that's granting us our assurance. But it says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, and I'm addressing here, not filling, but sealing, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is what? It's in you. In other words, the Spirit of God lives in you. He, the Spirit of God, indwells in you. And beloved, this is the very reason in 430 where it tells us to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, that's one of the ways that you're not filled is by grieving the Holy Spirit. But even when you grieve the Holy Spirit, your salvation, my salvation, is still guaranteed. And so you can grieve him because he indwells in you. You can quench him, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, but the filling of the Spirit is not the same as sealing or permanent indwelling. You have that. When you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He seals you. He permanently lives within you. But the filling of the Spirit is distinct, okay? So there's number three. It does not refer to sealing or even indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul's talking about in 5.18. Fourthly, the filling of the Spirit, let me explain this, is not referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Now, this is important for you because people have asked me, have you been baptized into the Holy Spirit? And I always say, oh, indeed I have. Indeed I have because when you're a believer, for me at 14, when I got off my knees, the Spirit of God indwelled me at my salvation. The Spirit of God possessed me, if you will, internally. He is my guarantee. And he baptized me into the body of Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. You say, well, Scott, why do you say that? Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act whereby God places you supernaturally into the body of Christ at the time of your salvation. You don't need to be baptized. If you're in Christ, he puts you into the universal church, baptized you into the body of Christ. He places you into a local church, and he did that at the time of your salvation. But that's not the thought here. If, if I took you to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, it says there, we were all, what? Baptized. It's past tense there. It says baptized into one body. That's why if anybody names Christ, it'd be Ridiculous for them to name Christ and not be in fellowship somewhere. Because when Almighty God regenerates the heart, forms the heart, frames the heart, he not only saves you and forgives your sins, but he places you into the body of Christ, into one body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink one spirit and so we were baptized into the body of Christ at salvation. So when people ask me, have you been baptized in the spirit? The answer would be, yes, I was when I came to a saving relationship with Christ. So if they ask that question, have you been baptized as a, you know, into the body of Christ? as kind of a second work that's theologically incorrect. Let me say it this way. There are seven references to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and not one of them is a command. In fact, you don't even experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what do you mean by that? You don't even know what happens to you when you come to Christ you were placed into the body by a sovereign triune God and immersed, if you will, into the body, you didn't even probably know that happens. And never in all of the New Testament are you ever commanded to be baptized in the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we speak of that, is the initial blessing at salvation like this is just true, it is not a subsequent blessing to take place after your salvation, okay? So it happens at the time of, it's not a subsequent blessing. In fact, as I mentioned, the baptism of the Spirit is not even an experience. It's something that God does at the very moment of your salvation when he places you into his body when you believe. And again, nowhere Are you ever commanded to be baptized? But here, understand, you are commanded, yes, to be filled with the Spirit. So let me put it this way. Here, we're never commanded to seek a bizarre experience. We're never commanded ever to seek a second blessing We're never commanded to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, and we're never commanded to be baptized into the Spirit. And the reason being is the Spirit of God already indwells you. The Spirit of God has already sealed you at the time of your salvation. However, you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. John Stott wrote a real helpful little book, and the book's called Baptism in fullness. And here's what he said. I think it was clear. He said, when we speak of the baptism of the Spirit, we are referring to a once-for-all gift. When we speak of the filling of the Spirit, we acknowledge that this gift needs to be continually and increasingly appropriated. Okay? I like that. Here, this happened at our salvation, but this is for us. You, as a husband, you as a wife, as a grandfather, as a grandmother, as a student, and I would even say as a child. How would a child be able to obey and honor their parents and the Lord without the Spirit's help? And so this teaching is crucial for us. Let let me give you just a couple clicks here of the meaning of this word, okay? Number one, and you've heard me say this, under this command, be filled with the Spirit, is I'm gonna say it this, it's a continuous action. Or I could say it's a continuous command. What I mean by that, or at least what the Scripture is saying, is it is a present tense command. What you could say is this, be kept continually, Filled by the Spirit. Be perpetually feel, filled by the Spirit. Or let it be your constant condition to be continually feel, filled by the Holy Spirit. This is why it's not an experience. It's not a second blessing. Actually, this is a moment-by-moment moment truth. There's times and places where the action is singular. In John 2, 7... Uh, remember when we were studying John? There was a single action there where it said, "Fill the jars of of water." One time, fill it, and he did, and it turned into wine. Not not here. This is present tense. And so, though all believers are sealed, not all believers remain filled. Sealing, sealing, if you will, is past and finished. While the filling of the Spirit is present and continuous action, it is a moment by moment action. I just think of my own life, your life, and the sanctification process. Every day we get up, we're dependent on the Lord, are we not? Every day we're dependent on the Spirit. Every day, I put it this way, instead of yielding to the control of your body and mind and reflexes to alcohol, your mind and my mind ought to be yielding in obedience every single day to this command. And that is why you need to be in the Word every day, why you need to be in prayer every day, Because it's a present tense command. It's moment by moment. I mean, I'm thinking of the apostle Peter. Sometimes he was phenomenal saying, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And in the very next moment, Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, who? Satan. We moment by moment need to live with this truth. So number one, I'm saying here, it's a continuous action. Number two, it's funny. Does it say it there? It's not, is it active or is it passive? What do you think? I mean, on the one hand, you're saying it's a command, and so it's, it's active. Well, actually, the verb here is passive. It's passive. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. So rather than working yourself up, you are actually letting the Holy Spirit take control of your decisions and he begins, if you will, to fill you. In other words, you're not filling yourself, praise God, which means it's not a bizarre experience. You're actually inviting the control of the Holy Spirit in your life so that he fills you. It's almost like Romans 12, 2, when it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye, present tense, transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there, that word transformation is passive. In other words, as you're not conformed to this world, but as you place yourself under the teaching of the word of God, the word of God naturally transforms you. Here, the thought isn't that you doing it. You're passive in this. You're dependent on this. So number one, it's a present continuous. Secondly, it's a passive voice, I should say. And thirdly, and I don't mean to be confusing to you, it is a command. It is a command, okay? In other words, we call that the imperative mood, if you will. This is not a suggestion, as I've said, This is not a recommendation. This is not advice that Paul is giving. It is a command that you and I are to obey, if you will. So here's what's amazing about this. You don't fill yourself, and yet in the same breath, you have a command to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, men, women, you're not passive in this. In other words, I could point back that the man who gets drunk gets drunk because he drinks, if you will. And here is an amazing interplay between divine responsibility or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So on the one hand, it's a passive voice. The Spirit of God is filling you. And yet on the other hand, it's a command. And the fourth thing I'll say to you is this, and it's it's plural in form, plural in form. It says, "Do not get, but be, but be filled." It's plural in its form. You say, "Well, Scott, what does that mean?" In other words, it just simply means this is not a command for the privileged few. This is not a command for the special people who mystically or esoterically commune with God. This is a command for every one of you. In fact, apart from this grasp of this truth, we won't be able to live this out, but it's plural. It's for It's for all of us. To be filled as a present continuous action. It's in the passive voice. You're not doing it. The Spirit of God is filling you. It's a command to be obeyed and it's plural in form. It's for every Christian. So watch this. Every believer is indwelt by God. Every believer is sealed by the Spirit. Every believer has been baptized, if you will. But here... In the filling of the Holy Spirit, you need to walk in obedience to this. A failure to do this is to live a defeated Christian life in spiritual weakness and in frustration. You, you say, well, Scott, give me something more. We're just opening this up today, okay? But I would put it this way. You'll know real quick if you're following forward in this command. So how would I know? Okay, Scott, it's a present tense. Okay, Scott, it's, it's the Spirit doing it. Okay, it's a command. I need to obey it, and it's plural. It's for me, but how do I know? Well, it'll just be a quick test for you. Do you manifest in your life the fruit of the Spirit? And, and I'm preaching this to myself. If you're filled with the Spirit, you'll manifest the fruit of the Spirit out of your life will become will come love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Or Paul would say in Galatians 5, the opposite. Remember when he says this, look back in Galatians 5, he said, the opposite is to be in the flesh. And the Spirit in 5.17, it says the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the thing you want to do in Galatians 5.17. But if you're, and he uses a different word play here, if you're led by the Spirit, he says, do you see that in 5.18? You're not under the law. And the point would be, what do you mean you're not under the law? Why would you need a law? Why would you need some external law? If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Because if you're led by the Spirit, you'll love God. If you're led by your Spirit, you'll never steal. If you're led by the Spirit, you would never, you know, covet In other words, when you're led by the Spirit, you don't need an external law to tell you what to do. The Spirit's going to lead you. And then he says in 19, the works of the flesh are evident. What are they? And we've been speaking of these. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And then these, those are the big ones. And then these, enmity. Is your home at peace? Are you filled with the Spirit, husbands? Wives, are you filled with the Spirit, or is there enmity, and strife, and jealousy, and fits of anger, and rivalries, and dissensions, and division? See, listen, for us to glorify God as a church, we got to be unified, and to be unified, we got to walk in wisdom. And to walk in wisdom, we need to be filled with the Spirit. But that's just a little checkpoint for you. Out of your mouth, out of your heart. Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness? I might have got those mixed up. Is that what's coming out of your life? Or is there dissensions and factions and enmity and you're at war with people and you're at bitterness with people and there's a lack of forgiveness in your life? There's a quick test. So listen, the person who gets drunk is under the influence of, of the spirits, or under the influence of alcohol, so much that the alcohol affects their walk, speech, timing, balance, thinking, and response time. But to be filled with the Spirit is to obey the Scripture's command, and it is to be so affected by the Spirit that your walk and your speech and your thinking and your responses are so filled by the Spirit of God that your personality, that your time, your talents, your emotions, your treasures, your heart will be under the control of the Spirit of God. Listen, we'll dive more in next week, but this is a crucial truth, isn't it?